This is Where We Live, live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. From 1872 to 1881, the Chinese educational mission sent 120 young boys to America on an educational exchange program. These boys were taught science and engineering, but their time in the United States didn't come without challenges. Today, we hear the stories of these boys and what their lives look like around New England. We hear from the Connecticut Historical Society and learn about an exhibit featuring artifacts from the Chinese educational mission. Joining us now on Zoom is Karen Lai Miller, research historian at the Connecticut Historical Society, and Henry Q. He's a data scientist with Indigo Architect Arc- Agriculture. He worked on translating these letters. You can also join us on the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Thanks, both of you, for joining us today. Good to be here. Thank you. Um, so I want to start with Karen. Uh, tell us about the Chinese educational mission. How did these boys end up in the United States? The initiative and the vision came from Young Wing, who himself was an, an international student. He studied at Monson Academy in Massachusetts as a, a child and then attended in, uh, Yale and graduated as the first uh, Chinese student to graduate from a North American university in 1852. And when he returned to China, he had this vision of uh, how, you know, he was thinking about how he could help his country and uplift. And he looked back on his experiences in the United States and and fostered this idea of an international exchange. And um, he valued international collaboration between countries, communities, and individuals. And he wanted to use this means to, uh, you know, reinvigorate and uplift and modernize China. So it sounds like a really superficial version of what we know as studying abroad today. Was this a really prestigious program for students to be a part of? I think it was very difficult for parents to, as as we can all imagine, <laughs> it would be very difficult, I think, for parents to let go of their children, to have them study far, far away in a foreign country without, <laughs> without today's technological communication advancements. But they were representatives of the emperor. They were imperial scholars. And these families and these boys made sacrifices in order to you know, support their country. Sounds a lot of pressure for students who are as young as nine years old. So I think I read somewhere that they were promised jobs within the government when after they go through this program. So was it their ultimate aim to bring these skills back to China? Absolutely. So the this uh, the Chinese educational mission, CEM for short, was supported by the Chinese government with the hope that after 15 years of education and training in the United States, that the boys would return to China and apply their uh, science, math, and technological skills uh, to you know really modern fields at that time, like the telegraph and um, engineering and mining and railroads. And so, you know, some some students returned home, but some stayed. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, I think these are significant. Uh, Chinese Americans, people who paved the way for um, many of us. I think of Chang Hong Yen, who remained in the United, who returned to the United States as quickly as he could after the recall of the students. He attended, he's a first Chinese graduate of Columbia Law and uh, became the first Chinese American lawyer. He faced a great deal of discrimination 
uh, barred from practicing. And ultimately, he won his fight, uh, at least in New York, to practice law. So probably made the long journey worth it, right? <laughs> so, um, Karen, just yeah. wanted to ask you, you know, what does this exhibit look like? It sounds like there's a lot of information, a lot of artifacts. Can you paint a picture of what that looks like? And how did it get started? Okay. Well, this, uh, this year is the 150th anniversary of the arrival of the first cohort of students. So our executive director, Rob Kret, wanted to celebrate and honor this, uh, you know, monumental uh, event. And at the CHS, we have this incredibly uh, rich and rare collection of items related to the CEM. We have uh, letters and autograph books and clothing, and it really tells the story of how uh, how, you know, how the families felt, how the boys felt, um, uh, how their host families formed loving relationships with these students. Um, people's there, we have records of the students' experiences at school. And so we want to showcase this collection and share it with uh, all our visitors. We also quite fortunately had this visit from Dr. Henry Q, who stopped by the CHS uh, three years ago, and he read some of the letters in our collection, which were in Chinese, uh, still untranslated, and he began reading them, and they just touched him so much, and he shared his uh, findings with us, and we knew that, and he, you know, volunteered to translate them for the CHS, and we just knew that we had this really wonderful um collection of materials that testify to the experiences of, you know, these pioneering international students. So we'll get to a Henry Q in a second, but just wanted um, to ask you real quick, you know, wh why do you think it was important to showcase these letters? Oh, my goodness. I think we have, in addition to the letters, when we, uh, everyone who reads these letters, we, we think, is, is this, um, it's very relatable. I think everyone can find a way to relate to this exhibit. You know, when we see these letters of parents telling their kids to study hard and not waste time and money, or students talking about their loneliness or their love for their hosts and for each other. This is something that particularly in this time, we can see the power of uh, connections on a global level and what we can achieve if we work together. Because Young Wing had this wild idea of sending 120 boys to live with American hosts, go to local American schools, and this would benefit China and the United States. And you think, oh my goodness, this uh, remarkable dream, and it came true. You know, so we think of it as an inspirational story for dreaming big, but also to remind us of the values of uh, working together. I think that's amazing. And also anyone who's working away from home or being away from family can relate to this. And now I just want to introduce uh, Henry Q. He's a data scientist based in Boston and worked on translating these letters. Um, Henry, can you share with us a bit about your background and how did you happen upon some of these letters? Um, yeah. Hi, everybody. Um, so I was actually trained at Rutgers University to be a plant breeder. But, uh, you know, when I graduated, I found a job with Indigo Agriculture to work on data science and uh, and agriculture. When I was uh, relocating from, from New Jersey to Boston, I stopped at Hartford 
And this is how I get to discover, you know, all these letters. It's, it was purely by by accidents, I would say. You know, sometimes I feel like uh, there there must have been some superpower that lead me to discover those. <laughs> That's really funny. I love it. And um, what was it like translating these letters? Was it an emotional time? Was it an emotional process? Like, tell us a little bit about that. It was a. Uh, it was definitely a difficult time, you know. I, um, as soon as, um, well, not not too long after I relocated to Boston, you know, everybody started to work from home. Uh, well, that also gave me some time to look at those letters, um, but it was definitely emotional. Um, it feels like uh, I was one of them, except I'm 150 years later. Um, a lot of the things, um, it feels like. Uh, uh, it just like it happened to me uh, as an international student. You know, the same feeling was filled 150 years earlier. Yeah. How did that make you feel? The fact that you're here 150 years later, but you're you're really feeling the emotions of of a young boy from from 150 years before. It it, it definitely touches my heart. I remember uh, the first letter I read. It's the same poem that my parents forced me to recite. <laughs> but uh, as I age, um, I started, and uh, when, when I go back and read the same poem, it definitely, definitely I feel a different taste, a different feeling, and different emotions, you know, embedded in those characters, you know. Is this a poem that was written in one of those letters? That's right, yeah. And you mentioned you wanted to share it. Um, what, do you want to go ahead and, and share that poem with us? Definitely, definitely. This this poem was originally written by an author in Tang Dynasty, which is around 800 um, uh, years. So that was 1,000 1, years before uh, the boy who re- who copied this um, uh, poem in his home letter. In this home letter, the boy re- uh, wrote back home. He didn't mention any details about his personal life except this one poem. So you can tell how... What kind of emotion, you know, or, or what kind of significant uh, position, you know, that poem was, you know, in his in his life. Uh, the title of this poem is called uh, "Saying Goodbye to My Friends Xin Jian at the Lotus Tower." Um, I'm gonna try to trans my best to translate at uh, first, and then uh, I wanna read it in the original uh, language so that we can hopefully we can. Um, through the space and the language barrier and feel the emotions of the boy. Um, so in the letter, there are only four letter, four uh, lines in this poem. Uh, the first line is, a cold torrential rain entered Wu district during the night. At dawn, I saw my guest off at the lonely true mountain. If my friends and relatives in Luoyang ask about me, just tell them that my heart is as pure as crystal ice in a jade pot, untarnished by the world's fame uh, and fortune. Um, back in the days when people recite this kind of poem, it's almost like the Greek uh, uh, um, uh, rhapsode. You know, it was means to be seen and not um, uh, not read. So I'm just, I'm gonna try my best to sing that so that we can feel it. 寒雨连江夜入吴
That's it. <laughs> I think you just took me back to that time. I don't know about you guys, but I got goosebumps there. Um, do you have any thoughts of why this student chose this poem? I know you kind of mentioned, you know, this is the kind of poetry that was recited when you're away from home, when you're missing someone. But for someone who was, what, 15, 19 years old, what do you think about that? Um, well, first of all, I think uh, it's some kind of, um, it, it feels like when I first started studying in America, you know, all the news that I like to share with my parents are, are going to be the good news because I know they will be concerned about my situation if I tell them any any bad thing happened to me. So it's about telling the parents that, you know, everything is good to me. Uh, don't worry too much about me. And the other thing I think the boy was trying to tell the parents is that, um, you know, it was it was the first time when China actually tried to open itself up to the outside world by sending those students to a foreign country. I think the boy was also trying to tell their parents, although I'm studying in America in a different country, I'm still uh, Chinese, you know, as pure as as the eyes in the, in the jade pot. Yeah. So I want to bring Karen back to the conversation, and that was the perfect bridge to the next question is, can you share about the things that the students weren't allowed or supposed to do while they're in the, in the United States to prevent them from assimilating? Exactly. The students were expected to remain Chinese, and uh, they sent the CEM program sent to teachers from China to, uh, you know, nurture the boys' uh academics in Chinese as well as uh, Chinese culture. So they were not by imperial uh, rules, not allowed to cut their queue. Uh, they were not supposed to convert to Christianity uh, in a sense, essentially, you know, remain uh, Chinese in a uh, traditional or narrow sense uh, while learning from the American educational system. So I can imagine that's a challenge for them in general, but what are other challenges that they may have encountered while being in the in the United States? You know, at this time, we're in the mid uh, to late 19th century, there is anti-Chinese uh, sentiments, uh, actions. There are policies which restrict uh, the movement and the, ac the actions of Chinese, the Chinese in America. So on a uh, personal, like an individual level, they did not perhaps suffer the lynchings or, you know, the burning down of Chinese communities. They, since these students lived uh, throughout Connecticut and Massachusetts in, uh, you know, various places like Hebron or New Hartford, they were somewhat sheltered from that violence. But, you know, we do have accounts in the exhibit in which students talk about uh, just even having to fight on school grounds because people pulled their cues or called their traditional dress, uh, you know, girls' dresses and called them, you know, sissies and girls. And so there's challenges when they were in the United States. And I think for anyone who has left home understands that when you go back home, you're a different person. Uh, can you talk about what did the lives look like for the boys when they returned to China? Very difficult at first. As you said, there is some suspicion about these westernized. <laughs> so even despite the regular, you know, the rules about not assimilating, the boys did adopt, you know, very different. Um, they had, had different life experiences, which shaped them, shaped even the way they walked and talked and thought. And 
when they went home, it was difficult. Uh, they were not seen, you know, they were seen as somewhat foreign. And But after a while, as China's also progressing and modernizing itself, and these men came of age, this uh, it all worked out that they, the students with their strong educational backgrounds, um, strong English language skills, and understanding of global relations, China was, they were able to serve their country to its full, their fullest by becoming diplomats and engineers, naval officers, uh, you know, people who worked like we have Chung Man Yu who worked in the director of mining and banks and the mint in China. And so what about the boys that remained in the United States? Can you talk about that for a little bit? We had uh, some who succeeded very well, like uh Shang Hongyan, the lawyer. We had uh, Li Yanfu, who became the first Chinese-American published author. Um, his story perhaps helps show us this, the challenges of, um, you know, loving and, and, and not fitting into either country. Um, at one point in Li Fan Yu's life, uh, I think he was, you know, someone asked him like, oh, are you a citizen of China or the United States? And he's like, I'm a citizen of no country at all. So I think sometimes there was that sense of uh, divide or, you know, how do you bridge two cultures? I'm from Connecticut Public Radio. This is where we live. I'm Catherine Shen. Henry, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're hearing from Karen Lai Miller. She's a research historian at the Connecticut Historical Society. She's going to stay with us. And coming up, we talk about one of the descendants of the Chinese educational mission. Stay tuned. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Today, we're learning about the Chinese Educational Mission, an educational exchange program which sent 120 young Chinese boys to America from 1871 to 1881. The boys stayed with several families in the Hartford area and across New England. They were also educated at several prestigious institutions, including Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts, and later at Yale and New Haven. Joining us now is Chris Lee, who is a descendant of one of the boys of the Chinese Educational Mission. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tess. Um, you can also join us at the conversation at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Um, Chris, can you tell me a little bit about your background and your relation to these letters? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I came myself as an international student. I'm from Canada, uh, but my great-grandfather is Young Hoi, who was one of the students in the third cohort, and he was a cousin of Young Wing. And how did you find out about these letters? Ah, well, I've been in touch with the Connecticut Historical Society for a little bit, and I've had some interest in the extended family for maybe like 15, 16 years. So I've been kind of researching it on my own. 
And what did you find out about these letters? Oh, it's it's great to have this historical capsule. It's wonderful that Henry did such a, a great effort. I know it wasn't easy to do, but it's a uh, Wonderful to see how the students interacted with their family, their friends, uh, writing back home. Uh, they certainly wrote of a lot of common themes, whether it's uh, loneliness or whether it's trying to connect or sending back news. And uh, certainly, you know, you can see some progression in their thought as well. Tell us about your great grandfather. You know, he was one of the students. I cannot imagine the experience that he had during that time. No, absolutely. He was nine when he first came, and that's uh, quite a tender age. My own daughter is nine now, so it's hard for us to even think about sending her away for uh, a week to camp. And here we are talking about sending away students for 15 years, uh, and they were signed up at this age, but um, certainly a number of the families wanted to expose their kids to a broader outlook in life or to uh, see the world to um, expand their minds in the process. Uh, my grandfather was one of those. He wrote even at an early age as wanting to go beyond this provincial experience that he had and he wanted to see the world and uh, that he wanted to gain a different perspective and hopefully be able to um, see the best of all worlds and remain Chinese at the same time. So Henry Q, who translated the letters, had shared with us that it was very emotional reading these letters because he felt a kinship to the boys. What was it like for you reading these letters back? Sure. Uh, I had more fascination of seeing how this connected with the stories that my grandmother, so this is uh, my great-grandfather who went to the United States in this first cohort, and um, so his youngest daughter would tell me these stories about uh, you know, her brothers or her, her dad. And I'm beginning to connect those dots about, oh, this is what grandma is talking about. And uh, that was exciting for me. And so these letters only tell a part of the story in the past. And so let's kind of bring it back to the present. Can you tell us what happened to your family members after the program? And how did your family end up returning to the United States? Sure, absolutely. I think... Uh, my great-grandfather did remain mostly in China in government service, and he didn't have a particularly spectacular career. Uh, he was associated with Dr. Sun Yat-sen, who was his friend and went to his wedding. Uh, but, you know, he did do some tasks for Dr. Sun Yat-sen. And then his own kids, I think he instilled very much a sense of, you got to better yourself. You have to uh, think about, you know, how you might be the best you can be, be the best version of yourself and do excellently no matter what you do. Certainly, if you're good at school or at, good at academics, you can pursue that track. And a number of them, I think, partly due to their familiarity with the American educational system, did go back, I think, eight out of the 11, um, including my grandmother, uh, came and studied in the States, often for uh, graduate degrees. Very unusual, even for the women in, in the 30s and the 40s to get uh, that kind of education. So uh, they came back, they got their education. Some of them returned back to China. Some of them dispersed to uh, various areas in the Pacific Rim. As I mentioned, I, I grew up in Vancouver. So I, I certainly benefited from the positive regard that my family had for the United States. 
and uh, I actually returned to the Boston area because I wanted to study there. And so you mentioned that I mean, you kind of have the best of both worlds, it seems like, a little a little bit. Um, how has that informed you in terms of you know, living your life today, knowing that you have this rich history? No, absolutely. So there's, there's certainly you know, two main areas. One are the values of my family, and the other one is kind of uh, an outlook, a certain outlook, where you know it's it's kind of neat. Uh, maybe the outlook is more interesting, but the it's being able to see things from multiple perspectives, and you know, certainly being able to compare and contrast and say, oh, this is not the way I've done things, or not the way that I'm I'm used to, and being able to be open-minded enough and examine it and say, oh, okay, maybe I can find the best of all worlds or best of both worlds and um, try to find win-win solutions that have uh, been beneficial to my own life or um, to how I see the world. And certainly in um, the values of my family, I think even my great-grandfather would write letters to you know his children. And I know he said uh, to his son, you know, it's very important. Uh, you can have as much self-enrichment or being a continual learner all your life. Um, that's, you know, you should have this mentality. And uh, he believed in the love of learning for its own sake, not for merely passing examinations to achieve fame and wealth. And uh, he highly encouraged that. And just want to bring Karen back to the conversation. We're hearing from Karen Lai Miller, who's a research historian with the Connecticut Historical Society. Uh, Karen, can you talk about the importance of displaying these artifacts during a time where anti-Asian discrimination and hate crimes are still so prevalent? Uh, yes, unfortunately. And we hope that visitors and uh, the exhibit is now available online. We have a, a virtu uh, virtual exhibit that uh, people can access. And we hope by coming to the CHS and viewing these items um, and connecting with these stories that we see the importance of bridging uh, cultures and communities and individuals. So we have, uh, oh, you know, Chris Lee and his children read some of these letters. And I think these are some of the most special part of the exhibit where you could listen to these young voices read letters from 150 years ago. And they are, you know, the descendants, but they are also contemporary uh, Asian Americans. And that still resonates really very powerfully. I, again, think that many people can connect to this exhibit and this story in many ways and realize that we are connected. We're going to try to take a call now from Michael Marcus from West Hartford, who has been researching this for decades. Uh, Michael, are you there? Yes. Hi. Good morning. Am I on? Yes. Feel free oh, to hi. share. It's, yeah. Oh, it's fantastic that this this topic is getting airtime. I think there were two other facts. Um, maybe I don't know if they were mentioned. Uh, a little more obscure, even that audiences might be interested in. Uh, the first is. A, deals with the issue of Jung Wing's citizenship. After he graduated Yale, he was granted citizenship. He fell through the racial cracks somehow, and then it was revoked behind his back. He learned about it about uh, circa 1903, and his Hartford friends literally smuggled him back into this country, and he lived in boarding houses uh, down by uh, town of Salem Avenue. Not quite penniless, but almost. It's a very shameful thing. And the second, even more obscure 
uh, item is that the first cohort of boys uh, on their way on their train ride, when you know one of the first trains to go from the West Coast to the East Coast, they found themselves in the middle of a train robbery by the Jesse James gang. Well, this sounds really dramatic. Thank you so much, Michael, for your call. Um, I want to ask uh, Karen, do you mind responding to that? I think this absolutely it brings up how remarkable and uh, challenging and exciting this adventure of moving from China to the United States must have been at, at any time in history, but especially at this time. When And we have a map in our exhibit that was created for us by historical cartographers, and it just shows you the very long journey across the ocean and then across the whole continental U.S. And uh, yeah, I think part of that adventure might have been meeting Jesse James. And with Young Wing and um, the loss of his citizenship, that, you know, that helps us gauge and trace the rise of anti-Chinese sentiments at this time. His citizenship was revoked. But very interestingly, at the Hartford His History Center, they have a voting card. So if anyone's interested in researching this further, um, please know that Young Wing was able to vote in Hartford, even though he did not have citizenship. Well, I know what I'm going to be doing after this show is to do more research on that. Uh, thank you, Michael, for that call. And thanks, Karen, for your response. And Chris, I just want to touch on you real quick, too. Do you want to respond to what you just heard and also with what Karen shared about the importance of sharing this history um, for the Chinese educational mission? No, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's definitely one of our most positive chapters, uh, this Chinese educational mission, since there's a lot of great legacy that we can tie back to this, whether, you know, it's like um, the people that uh, Karen mentioned about, but also there's an, a number of people uh, that, you know, weren't mentioned that achieved great things for China, whether in the railroads, uh, but also there was a, a number of diplomats that came out of this effort. So, um, you know, we can kind of see their positive legacy in terms of influencing the Boxer Indemnity Program, and then, you know, Tsinghua University coming out of that. And uh, I think it kind of leads to, these kinds of programs do lead to, um, you know, positive outlooks. And, you know, in uh, the southeastern part of China, you can find an unusual amount of uh, love for Hartford, and it's specifically named. Uh, you're thinking, well, you know, Hartford's not a big city in the United States, but Hey, it's it's a uh, you know very well thought of, and partly because of all this hospitality and the Chinese educational mission, um, you know we can look to this program as kind of a, a model of sorts, or at least you know pioneering the international student experience in America. So certainly, there's a lot of positivity around that. Well, thank you for that. Um, from Connecticut Public Radio, this is Where We Live. I'm Catherine Shen. We're hearing from Karen Lai Miller, research historian with Connecticut Historical Society, and Chris Lee, a descendant of one of the boys. Thank you both so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Uh, coming up, we talk about what Connecticut's AAPI curriculum might look like in public school classrooms. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live, live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Connecticut has become one of the first states to implement the AAPI curriculum, that's Asian American and Pacific Islanders curriculum, in the classroom. Legislation passed in May that mandated AAPI studies to be part of the social studies curriculum for public schools starting at the beginning of the 2025-26 school year. But what should that curriculum look like? What histories will be included? Joining us now on Zoom is someone working to shape that curriculum. Jason Oliver Chang is the Associate Professor of History and Director of the Asian and Asian American Studies Institute at UConn. Thanks for joining us, Jason. Hi, Catherine. Great to be here. Thanks for this show. You can also join the conversation at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Jason, we're going to jump straight to it. How did you get interested in Asian American studies? And can you talk about how you got involved in developing this curriculum? Wow. So, yeah, I, I actually became interested in Asian American studies um, by first studying Chicano studies. And um, I had never asked any questions about my own family's immigration history, but studied Mexican-American migration um, at the U.S.-Mexico border um, and studied in Arizona and gradually seemed to find that there were so many similar um, experiences in the immigration story and struggles against racism and exclusion um, and that turned me to then think about my own family and about uh, about the the hidden histories of Asian Americans at the U.S.-Mexico border. So that was my entry into Asian American studies, um, sort of you know a, a roundabout way, I suppose. Um, but it was um, the experience of teaching in the classroom uh, here at UConn, where I would have students at the end of the semester always tell me you know, why did I have to wait so long to learn about my family story? And that really resonated with me and demonstrated we need to expand Asian American studies beyond the higher ed, you know, electives that, you know, students may have the chance to take it should they come to college. Uh, and we, we found that, you know, high school students around the state were feeling the same way. And they really help. They this this new legislation really belongs to them and their voices. And why do you think this is an important time to do this? Uh, we've had previous conversations talking about you know we were sort of riding on the wave of the movie Crazy Rich Asians, which had a positive sort of outlook for the community. But during the pandemic, that did not seem to be the case anymore. Can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, that period before the pandemic, there seemed to be, you know, sort of a celebration of the representation of Asian Americans in media and having these kind of, you know, positive, you know, all Asian cast uh, Hollywood movie um, that, you know, seemed to signal at least a, a modicum of acceptance um, or at least popularity in some corners. Uh, but that, that experience, you know, quickly faded, you know, shattered with the onset of the pandemic and the, you know, the, the surge in anti-Asian racism um, brought on through the, you know, the antagonized by the Trump administration um, and, and really, you know, drew from a deep reservoir of historical experiences uh, drawing from, 
you know, the, the history of exclusion, uh, racialized exclusion, um, drawing from uh, many of the other, you know, um, uh, experiences from other Asian Americans besides the besides Chinese Americans. So, um, so these, you know, particularly thinking of, you know, like the, um, the discrimination and the, the, um, uh, the attacks towards Sikh Americans after 9-11. Uh, so when we have this kind of vitriol and violence facing our communities, it's really, important to combat that with you know accurate histories and with you know uh, with to you know unpack and dismantle those those stereotypes and i couldn't be more proud of having something uh, an exhibit like this in the people's museum in in the connecticut historical society um so i think this is you know really important work so when the curriculum is finalized, what will that look like in a Connecticut classroom? Um, how do you fight the stereotypes of sort of lumping all the Asian ethnicities into one group? Because I think there's, just in Connecticut alone, there's 20 plus different Asian ethnicities, right? That's right. Yeah. So, you know, there's no, there's not going to be a magic bullet here. This is uh, a curriculum that we hope will be ever evolving and changing and being updated and renewed uh, by teachers, by students, and by our institutions, uh, like, uh, like historical societies. Um, but it will consist of lessons in every grade level, uh, and that each each of those lessons will have an inflection point where it, that may focus on a particular ethnic group or a particular, you know, city or experience within Connecticut or in the national landscape, uh, but that there will be an inflection point that that directs attention back to the diversity of Asian Americans, uh, and that these are, you know, uh, a kind of you know a, a, an integral design element to the lessons that um, that we want to create. And, you know, what's interesting about this work to me is that, um, you know, the legislation pinpoints, you know, and, and underscores the need for uh, illuminating Asian American contributions to Connecticut. And, you know, those stories really haven't been told yet. I mean, they exist in our families and in and, and, and local organizations. Um, but they that work still needs to be done. So I'm really grateful for the three year, you know, uh, runway up to the implementation date because we're working with communities now to get those stories told and to, you know, have them involved in what kinds of lessons and um, and and histories that other communities can learn about in the state. So this is, you know, a a collaborative project um, and we hope that you know over the course of the long arc of you know the 13 years from kindergarten to to the end of high school that that students beginning in 2025 will begin to have lessons every year that incorporates that and creates a really dynamic and and broad uh, diverse understanding of Asian America and Asian Americans in the state. 
So can you walk us through the process a little bit on on how you create that uh, communities and projects and, and the curriculum? Are you meeting with community members? Are you meeting with school districts? You know, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I can tell you about one example. One is a project that we're doing with the India Cultural Center in Greenwich. And we've partnered with the Greenwich Historical Society as well. So over the past three months, we've been working with uh, high school and middle school students to educate them about South Asian American history and uh, the techniques and methodologies of oral history. And we are having, you know, training these high school and middle school students to collect stories from their own family members about migration and moving to Connecticut. And uh, and so by January, we're going to have an exhibit at the Greenwich Historical Society that features their work. Uh, and, you know, we will uh, be collecting their audio stories as well as maps, that digital maps that, that they've made of their family's migration and other artifacts, family photos and, and um, you know, really thinking of, you know, those things that kind of connect the a lived experience to a material object, and um, and that these are uh, these will be the raw materials that we'll use to uh, to share with teachers, to share with curriculum developers, uh, and, and you know, in addition to other historical research, like I've been looking at uh, the um, the presence of South Asian students who came to Connecticut. Um, in some ways, very similar to the CEM, the Chinese Educational Mission students, after 1965, when we had immigration reform in the United States, um, Indian agricultural students came to study here and uh, were some of the first um, Indian Americans to, uh, to, to settle it at, in, that, in that early period in the 1960s. So kind of similar to oral history, but I want to talk about pop culture and its influence for a little bit. Um, how has that influence and interest in Asian studies, especially when you have streaming platforms like Netflix? I don't think we've ever had that kind of exposure before to international you know, movies and shows. Has that interest in like food, anime and K-pop made more younger generations interested in this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, w- the access to these different forms of media really show that 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 media from you know texts, videos, uh, music uh, from Asia is a part of global culture now, and uh, I think that's really exciting. Uh, and it it shows you know i think the the hunger for you know that many of that we were talking about with some of these students that hunger for to expand their horizons and and to participate in in other um in other cultures and develop that that uh, that awareness and appreciation i think there's you know there is to me a need to contextualize that that culture though uh that you know when we look at k-pop we have to recognize that you know much of that um that musical genre emerged out of the cold war out of uh u.s you know occupation in in korea the korean american war and so there's um there are you know a number of you know connections that I think should and can be made to these really popular global forms of 
uh, of culture uh, that can really connect to meaningful uh, experiences. And, uh, and I think when we do that, it serves to disrupt, I think, those stereotypes that we began the conversation talking about. Without that historical context, without that critical conversation, it seems that popular culture can just kind of update its stereotypes instead of dismantling them. Well, I was going to say, speaking of digging deep and getting into a deeper context, um, earlier in, in the summer, Attorney General William Tong had tweeted, the surge in anti-Asian violence and bigotry right now has its roots in a long history that has been unaddressed and ignored for too long. What are your thoughts about that? Mm, I mean, really grateful to live in Connecticut, where we have leaders such as you know William Tong, and speak to these uh, these issues. Um, you know, it, part of what what we're experiencing are the human costs of political and cultural invisibility. Um, when there isn't accountability, when we don't know about uh, or understand the Asian American community in Connecticut, they become vulnerable and. Uh, and that that is a recipe for danger. Um, and so it's important to connect these stories to the lived experience today, um, that they don't exist as, you know, you know, stories of the past that have sort of no bearing or a, a kind of, um, um, you know, that they're detached. So, I just really appreciated the the reading of the poetry and the family stories that really draw that connection. And I think it's it's those personal elements that humanize this history. Um, and you, you know, many times some of the only stories that people will hear about Asian Americans are that they were railroad workers or. Uh, were incarcerated during World War, yeah, Japanese Americans were incarcerated during World War II uh, without hearing their voices, without uh, humanizing that experience. Uh, so I think the work that's being done here and the focus on conducting contemporary research now is important to lifting up that that part of history and 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 connecting it to the urgent work we have to do to make our communities more safe. Well, Jason, thank you so much for your time today and for your work. Thank you. That was Jason Oliver Chang. He's an associate professor of history and director of the Asian and Asian American Studies Institute at UConn. Today's show was produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. I'm for Connecticut Public. I'm Catherine Shen, and thank you so much for listening today. <laughs>